we live in an entitlement society. Entitlement meaning the idea that as a person, just by the means of my existence, I deserve certain things. Now don't get me wrong, all throughout human history there have been uh, selfish people who out of pride feel entitled to a whole host of things. That's, that's been true of all humanity. But I want to take a look back at, at the last hundred years or so in American history and see where we've come from and where we've gotten to. Because I'll just say this, uh, the level of entitlement that exists today is off the charts. Okay, I want to take a look at this. This is a chart uh, that I made. This was a, a study uh, from a guy in ministry. It was from 2002, and I just picked a, a few of these ones out just to highlight. There you see on the top uh, the different generations, going back to the builders, and then the boomers, then the busters, then the bridges. The builders, you know, they were the ones that uh, fought in World War I and World War II. There's not many builders around today. Uh, the boomers were the generation that boomed when uh, the war was over, World War II. Around 1946 began a period of about 18 years uh, were the, the boomer generation. And then we have the busters. The busters in, include uh, uh, Gen X. Um, uh, this is, uh, I'm right at the tail end of, of that, the busters. And then you have bridges. Bridges would be the millennials. Um, they have other names uh, as well. Um, but that's, that's kind of the breakdown of the last hundred years or so of, of generations. Now, it's interesting to see the worldviews that these have. So, builders, their worldview was modern, as was boomers. It's a modern view of the world. Busters and bridges are uh, post-modern. Um, more meaning that there, there aren't uh, things etched in stone that we believe in that... Uh, Really, truth is relative. Uh, Then you have value systems. For builders, they were conservative. You think back on your parents, a conservative generation. Boomers, more self-based. Busters, media. Bridges, uh, shop around. Spending style, builders, save and pay cash. Boomers, buy now, pay later. Busters are more cautious. Bridges, spend your parents' money as fast as you can. Attitude toward authority. This is interesting. Builders, honor and respect. A generation of honor and respect, and we pay them honor and respect. And Boomers, they would challenge authority. The generation to follow the builders challenged everything. Busters, ignore authority. And bridges, leaders must respect you. Now you see the entitlement increasing as it goes along. But I think we can all agree on one thing this morning. It's the boomer's fault. Um, The boomer's fault, uh, just kidding. It's it's all of our faults. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we all have a sense of entitlement that's wrong. um, But let's pick a little bit on the millennials, okay? Take a look at this clip. This is uh, from someone who wants to have free education what really they're asking for here uh kelly mullen a million uh, student march national event organizer kelly good to have you keely i'm sorry is it keely or kelly that's okay uh, it's ooh, keely i apologize uh so what do you totally want fine. here what do you want 
Um, well, so the movement, the Million Student March, um, is a movement for a more um, equitable and fair system of education, as opposed to um, the really corporate model that we have right now. Uh, so the three core demands of the National Day of Action are free public college, a cancellation of student debt, and a $15 an hour minimum wage um, for people who work on the campus. And how's that going to be paid? Um, great question. Uh, I mean, you know, so I'm not sure if you're talking on like a national level or at particular schools. I can sort of touch on both. Um, at well, my if you wanted all that stuff, University, someone asked to pick up the tab. Who would that be? Um, the 1% of people in society that are hoarding um, the wealth and really sort of causing um, a catastrophe that students are facing. I mean, we have a, a relationship right now where 1% of the population owns more wealth than the 99% combined. All right, okay. So you see that this attitude then of entitlement is growing, and it is true, um, but it's not only for education. This attitude extends to people's concept of God and who He is and what He does. The prevailing attitude of our day is if you do believe in God, He is not a God who would judge someone. Everyone can do what is right in his or her own eyes. That's postmodernism. There are no moral absolutes. The question is not one of substance, but rather it's a question of sincerity. As long as a person is sincere in their belief, that's what matters. The modern conception of God is one of a loving and accepting God, and at the end of the day, He's only concerned with your sincerity. All roads lead up the mountain. All paths lead up to God. God is love, they say. And God is love. But love is not God. We live in a world governed by laws, don't we? The law of gravity, the law of inertia, the rule of law. You hear about the law of the land. Even when you drop some food on the ground, there's a rule, isn't it? It's the, five, what is it? The five-second rule. Mine's the five-minute rule, but it's, it's, uh, it's the same thing. So we live in, in a world of laws. Just this past week, I was uh, driving... Um, up 47 and uh, coming to church and I uh, had my cell phone in my hand and I had uh, I was on a call um, but I had it on speakerphone and uh, and all of a sudden the policeman pulled me over out of nowhere and uh, so I pulled over and I was like oh man what what's this about you know and uh, he got out and came up and he said, uh, you know, there's a new law in Illinois. So this is a public service announcement, by the way, just so you don't get pulled over. There's a new law in Illinois. If you've got your cell phone in one hand, you're going to get a ticket in the other hand. And there's no getting out of it. There's no question about it. And so I was really apologetic and I'm, I admitted I was wrong and, and uh, still I had, to, I had to get a ticket. And, um, and that was my first ticket in over 15 years. And so uh, it was very disappointing, but that's, that's the law. So why would we think that there would not be any laws whereby which we would come to God or, or seek to have a relationship with the God of heaven and earth? In a universe made up of laws, why do some drop the notion of any laws when it comes to God? Many paths, they say. It doesn't matter really what you believe, as long as you're sincere 
I have my beliefs. You have your beliefs. They're all valid. No. In the book of Proverbs, we read that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was the only religious figure in history to die for his people and come back alive to empower his people. Of all the religions in the world, there is none like Christianity. Why? Because of all the people in the world that have ever lived, there is none like Jesus. And this is why we listen to him. This is why we proclaim his word. He is the only one to come and teach and to love and to die for his people and then to come back alive. The Bible says the soul that sins will die. Who sins? Here, who sins? Let's see. All of us sin. The soul that sins will die. But all of us do, and all of us rebel, and all of us go our own way. All of us lie and cheat and gossip and selfish and we're prideful. All of us lust and murder and steal. Wait a second, you said murder? Jesus said if you have hatred in your heart toward another, you commit the sin of murder. The remarkable reality is not that there's only one way to God. The amazing thing that there is any way at all. The shocking thing is not that all roads don't lead to God. The astonishing thing is that any roads lead to God. And God made the road. He made the way through Jesus Christ. Are you on that road? Are you saved? Are you trusting in Christ as your Savior? Are you living for Him as your Lord? If you are, then you're different from the average person. You are different. The writers of the Bible say this about you. This is in your notes, so here we go. Christians' citizenship is not in this world. Philippians 3, verse 20, we read this. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Your citizenship is not here. You're an American citizen, but ultimately you're a citizen of heaven. Secondly, Christians are different from the world. Some of you might be thinking, yeah, I know some Christians that are, are really different. They, they're, uh, they're nerdy. They don't engage with their fr- uh, friends and neighbors. They don't, no, I'm not talking about that. That's just personality type. 1 Peter chapter 2 Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You're sojourners. You're an exile. You're an alien or stranger, another uh, translation says. And you wage war against your flesh. That's different. Most people I know don't wage war against their flesh. They indulge the flesh. Whatever gives you satisfaction and pleasure Go for it. Grab it. Christians, on the other hand, are different. We wage war, not perfectly, not all the time, but we do battle against the flesh. Thirdly, Christians are hated by the world. Jesus said this in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 18 and 19. 
If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So your citizenship is not here. You're a member, you're a citizen of heaven. You're different than from the world, and because of that difference, you are hated by the world. So these texts say that we are different, and they say a little bit about how we're different. But let's get more specific. Let's go a little deeper with this question this morning of how are we different. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, you're welcome to be here. I'm happy that you're here. This is the best place to uh, discover the claims of Christianity and to investigate what Jesus Christ said and what he did. And I pray that you would be challenged by it as well. How are we different as Christians? We're going to the book of Colossians this morning. So grab your Bibles or grab one of the few Bibles in the seats and uh, go to Colossians chapter 3. If you're using one of those Bibles out there, it's page 984. Colossians chapter 3. As we get to the text here this morning, let me just say a, a little bit about, about the book of Colossians, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. The Apostle Paul is the author. The church at Colossae, the, the church that he's writing to, it began during Paul's three-year ministry up the road at Ephesus. Its founder was not Paul. He had never been to this church the founder was Epaphras, we read in the first chapter, who apparently was saved during Paul's stay in Ephesus. And then he went back to Colossae, he returned home, he brought the gospel, the good news, and, and a church began. Several years after the church began, a dangerous heresy started in the church. And even though we don't know specifically what it was from Colossians, we can have a, a, an educated guess. It had to do with uh, early forms of Gnosticism, this idea that the flesh is evil that, um, and that Jesus wasn't really uh, a man, wasn't really divinity. He was an emanation from God and, and you've got to find this secret knowledge somewhere outside of even Jesus, a secret knowledge that will free your soul from your body. And that was combined with this um, teaching of the Judaizers. These were Jewish Christians that would, would claim Christ in some extent, but then would say you have to keep the dietary laws of the Old Testament, you, you must follow the ritual laws, and, and you must be circumcised, and all these things. So it's Jesus and something, Jesus plus something. And so Epaphras then goes back, it seems, to, to the Apostle Paul, who's in prison at the time, and says, hey, we need help at our church. So Paul then writes this letter from prison. This letter contains key areas of theology, including the deity of Christ, uh, reconciliation, redemption, election, forgiveness, the nature of the church, and it also speaks to refute that heresy that was beginning to grow in the church. And so you see in your notes a basic outline of the book of Colossians. You see it's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. Number one, it's the preeminence of Christ in the life of the Colossians. 
The gospel is bearing fruit in their life, and even though they're dealing with some false teaching, God is growing them and using them and changing them. Then the preeminence of Christ in his nature and work, that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, that Jesus is not just a, a superman, he's, all, he was, he's actually God in the flesh. And then the preeminence of Christ over false religion, these Judaizers, these Gnostics, Christ is better. And then fourthly, we get to our chapter 3, the preeminence of Christ in Christian living. Now we're ready for Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So how are Christians different? Number one, the Christian has a new capability. This new capability is being able to see and to seek heavenly things or things of God. So if you have been raised with Christ, you have new eyes. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Their eyes are blinded. They can't see, and they can't seek the things of God. This realization in my life changed the way that I looked at other people. I remember being very frustrated early on in my walk with Christ, even as a, a younger person, when I would hear people abuse the name of Jesus, of speak evil about God and things of God. I remember specifically in eighth grade at a table, uh, a, a girl, her name was Sky. I remember her name, um, and she was talking just nasty things about uh, Jesus and and it was blasphemy. It was gross. It was ugly. It was nasty. I'm like, how can how can that person say those things? And um, you know, I wouldn't be that mad if God hit her with lightning right now. You know, and uh, and I don't. That's not good. And and I come across these verses that God has blinded the eyes. Satan blinded the eyes under God's sovereign power, but Satan has blinded their eyes to the light of the gospel. And so why would they get it? I was messed up in my thinking. They can't see. They can't seek. God has, for whatever reason, out of his plan, has, has, has opened my eyes. I should be praying that he would open their eyes and, and loving with them, loving on them and being like Jesus. And Jesus who spent his time with the, the down and out and the ones whose eyes were blinded with the tax collector and with the sinner. Tax collector and sinners in the New Testament is a way of saying the lowest of the low, the deplorable. Where are you going to find Jesus? With them. 
And we so many times can get in our camps and exclude the ones that don't get it and exclude the ones that aren't like us. And meanwhile, their eyes are blinded and they just need to be loved and reached out to with the love of Christ. Christians have a new capability to see things differently and to actually seek the things of God. Since you have been made alive, if you have been, seek the things that are above. Have you been raised with Christ? If you have been raised with Christ, then not only are you able to see and to seek, you have new affections. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we read that all that are in Christ are a new creation. The old is gone, and all things have become new. When you are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, you begin to see things differently, you begin to seek after the things of God, and you have new affections that begin to come to, to the surface in your life. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't struggle with sin. That doesn't mean that you don't fall into old habits and old ways. But there's a new thing happening in your life, this new affection that you have for things of God. Have you been raised with Christ? Have you? The person and work of, of Christ is central to our mission here at Village. If you are around any of the teaching, it's going to come back to this over and over again. It's what Jesus was all about. It's his life. It's his, his ministry. It's, it's his mission. That's our mission. And so... Professionals tell us that every business is supposed to have a mission statement. Every person should have distilled down something that captures what they're all about. So what would that be for Jesus? Let me give you three verses that I think capture the mission of Jesus. John chapter 19, verse 20. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus is all about the lost. He came to seek and save. And maybe you're here today, you're lost. You haven't found your way. You've gone down different paths, bad paths, dangerous paths. Jesus come to save you and to seek after you. Jesus spent his time with the lost. He comes to seek and save the lost. Jesus told a story about the prodigal son. A son that who was old enough and he thought he knew enough about the world. And he said, give me my inheritance, dad. I'm out of here. And he went and he took that money and he partied hard and he lived it up and he lived the life and he had lots of friends while the money was around but once that ran out, they left him. He didn't have any work. He barely had enough food and he comes essentially crawling back to his father. And the scripture says Jesus is telling a story of God. God's the father. And while he sees the son a long way off, the father runs to his son the son of man came to seek and save the lost here's another mission statement john 3:17 many of us know john 3:16 right let's all say it together if everybody knows it and we'll see how many different versions there are for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life 
But John 3.17, mission statement, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. He didn't come to stand and bar and block the way to God. Jesus came and He said, I am the way to God. Come through me. I am the door. So if you're feeling condemnation or you don't even want to be involved in church or it's hard for you to come in through the doors, I'm going to be condemned or maybe God's going to kill me from all the things that I've done. No, no, no. Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to save. That the world through him might be saved. Third, John 10.10. Here's a great mission statement of Jesus. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The thief... The devil, Satan, comes to steal and to kill and destroy. I come to give life, abundant life. Jesus changes our life now and forever. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. It's simple to come to faith in Christ, but it's not easy. Now we do the things in life that we do because they bring us some sort of pleasure or some sort of joy. I would uh, argue this way, that everything we do, we have our own interests at heart or the interests of our family or the interests of our, our close ones. And, and uh, is that true? Let me give you some examples. Someone works out at the gym two hours every day. They don't eat sugar. They don't eat carbs. Why? Because they, they love that schedule and they love to chomp on salary? No. It's because they want to be healthy and they want to look good and they want to live a long life. They're pursuing a greater joy. I mean, no one really likes coffee. It's a nasty drink, right? <laughs> Alcohol tastes terrible. I mean, give it to your kids. See how they react. Not the alcohol, the coffee. Not the alcohol. (laughs) The coffee. They're acquired tastes. But you put up with it for the joy that it gives. The coffee livens up your day. Maybe the alcohol helps you relax. And and we can talk about that in another message. But but there's, there's stuff that happens. You pursue your pleasure, your joy. How about this? I'm going to get up early every morning. I'm going to work 12 hours a day. I'm going to work very hard for the next two months. Why? Because you like to work? Well, in some ways I like to work. I can enjoy my work. God's given me good work. But at the end of the day, you're doing that thing because you're going to provide for your family. You're going to, you're going to provide for your needs and you need that money and you need that paycheck and it's going to be good for you. Even if you're here today because someone invited you to church, they've been bugging you, and you didn't really want to come to church, but they've been bugging you and bugging you, and so you're here this morning, you came, you know it was for that greater joy to get that neighbor off your back. I would argue that everything that we do, we weigh the, the amount of pleasure and joy that we get out of it. You know that's true when it comes to God. It can be. You see God... And you see the forgiveness that he offers and you see the promise of, your hev- of, of heaven and you say, I-, I want that. Jesus was asked that question. What must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus didn't rebuke him for asking that question. But when you then come to Christ, 
and he saves you and he gives you new eyes and you're able to seek heavenly things and you have new affections then things begin to change and then you begin to see that this relationship with god it's not about you and it's not even about your joy it's about a right relationship with the god who made you the maker of heaven and earth and then you discover that it's all about god and his glory and then the amazing thing is he gives you that joy that you cannot find anywhere else. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The Christian has a new capability. The Christian has a new mentality. A new mentality. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. The way that we think has a direct correlation to our sanctification. Sanctification being how we are growing in our faith, how we are doing in our walk with God, how we are avoiding sin, how we are putting on uh, the, the new life, the new man, the new woman. Philippians 4 verse 8 says finally brothers whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is just whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is commendable if there is any excellence if there is anything worthy of praise think about these things so important to have our minds right especially when we're dealing with this area of sin now you've all raised your hands so I know that I'm Speaking for all of us, when I say this, sin makes promises that only God can fulfill. It does. Because remember, the things that we do, I suggested that we do it because we get pleasure out of it, or we get enjoyment out of it. There's something to be gained. And sin promises things that only God can deliver. Let me give you an example. Lust. Across all of our campuses, there are many situations of marriages where either the husband or wife is dealing with lust. I'm not just talking about dealing with pornography, but I'm talking about relationships outside of the home. Now there's a pleasure there. There's an excitement that's different from at home. There's an enjoyment that can be gained. There's an experience even. There's an experience that will bring about pleasure to the demise of your home and your marriage that God intends. And sin makes a promise that, um, hey, this is going to be wonderful. She gets you. Your wife doesn't get you. She's nagging on you all the time. She doesn't respect you. She doesn't appreciate what you're doing. This other one, she does. And it's new, and it's exciting, and, it's, and there's a promise there. And then what happens? Mayhem breaks loose. Marriages dissolve. Hearts are broken. Kids are left flailing. God's promise for you as you work out your marriage 
in the home is that he will bless you together as you pursue each other in him. Don't give in to the enticement of sin that says, this is really what you want. This will give you the pleasure. This will give you the joy. It never delivers. Only God can deliver. And God's created you to be with one man or one woman for your life. How about lying? How about lying? You tell a lie because you can get something out of it. I remember, uh, must have been junior high, I had a crush on a girl. Um, a girl who could not tie my wife's tennis shoes, okay? So let's just be straight with that. And uh, she snowboarded a lot. And she was a great snowboarder. And I remember talking to her on the phone, and uh, she asked if I snowboarded. And I said, yeah, I snowboard, yeah. And uh, lie. I had skied before. And uh, so then I pretended to talk like I knew what I was talking about. And then, uh, then I thought, man, you know, I, I should go snowboarding because at least then it won't be quite as bad of a lie. Uh, so I went snowboarding with a buddy of mine, and I about killed myself trying to snowboard. And uh, I'm like, I can't snowboard. And then she asked me to go snowboarding. And... I had to lie again. I couldn't go. Something was going on. It was a lie because I couldn't go. I would be caught in the lie. There was a temptation there to make myself look better that led down a wrong path that I had to lie again. I'm going deeper and deeper in my own sin. Lying. How about laziness? Proverbs say a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. If only I could, I don't have to do this. It'll be taken care of. It'll get done. I just need to take a, a nap versus the hard work of day in and day out. And, and there's a healthy balance there and there, there's a, a reason for a Sabbath rest. I get that. But the temptation uh, that, the, that sin makes, the promise that it makes is that if you just take a little time off, you'll be ready to go. And if you show me a lazy person, I'll show you a tired person. Christian has a new mentality. Thirdly, not only does a Christian have a new capability, a new mentality, the Christian has a new reality. We see that in the text right here. The reality is, is that your life is in Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The reality, this reality concerns how we respond to our own desires. What we're talking about today. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus said these words. And calling out to the crowd with the disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You want to follow me? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. You're dying to yourself. Those things that sin entices you with, those pleasures that it promises, those, those things that would seek your attention, deny those things for the sake of Christ, that He might live in you. To deny yourself means that you daily pray the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember what Jesus prayed? The, the, before He was crucified and 
He prays the prayer, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. That means let the cup, the suffering on the cross, the pain for your sin and my sin, the becoming sin for us, let it pass if there's some way, Father, but not my will, your will be done. That's the prayer of a Christian. That's our new reality. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now this is easy to do with things in our life that are already in accordance with God's word and with his will. Okay? This is very difficult in the areas of our life um, that we hold on to so tightly, that are so close to our center when those things get challenged. I can talk about the sin of homosexuality all day. I've never been tempted that way. I can, I can preach, I can thunder the sermons on that. But I can talk about lust or anger or the other things that I would struggle with. That's harder. I can talk about sinning against your body with drugs, how bad that is. Your body is a, a temple of the Holy Spirit. How can you do that to your body? But man, get out of my way at a buffet line. We don't want to do the hard work in the places where it matters the most, in the recesses of our heart. Rather, we want to preach and we want to thunder down the judgment on sins that are out there with others. May we be a people who live out this new reality, that we would die to ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And lastly, The Christian has a new eschatology. Eschatology is that part of theology that is concerned with death and judgment and the final destiny of the soul and of mankind. The Christian has a new eschatology. The Christian end is not the grave. The Christian end is not in judgment and in hell There is the promise of heaven. There's heaven now. To be absent absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, so that if I were to drop dead right now, my body would still be here, but I would be immediately in the presence of the Lord, along with other souls who have gone before me in the presence of the Lord. And it would be a glorious time for me. It would be a little awkward for you. But it would be a glorious time for me. To be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. And and then there's the then. Thou and then then. There's a time coming when we're going to receive a glorified body, a new body, and experience the new heavens and the new earth, the creation, the glorious creation of the Lord God without sin, without blemish, without death, without cancer. And that day is coming as well. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, verse 4. All at once this happens in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15 and 18. 
We read that, uh, that we won't precede those who have already died and are in the, the presence of God and in the presence of Jesus right now. We won't get our glorified body uh, before them. No, we all at once at Jesus Christ's appearing will receive our glorious bodies, resurrection bodies, like the Lord Jesus Christ's own body. When he rose again from the dead, he came and he, he could do miraculous things, but he ate food, he was walking and, and, and talking with his disciples, they could touch his hand and touch his feet, a real body, it's a, in our home we call it a super body, it's an amazing thing, it's a glorified body. Well, how, how, can, how could this happen? How, that's, that's hard to understand, that's hard to, how are we here? How do you have a body? How is the sun shining? How is it a glorious, beautiful day out? How can you think thoughts about yourself and, and, and you can process ideas about the future? It's because God made you. God created you after his own image and he's not just going to leave you. No, when Jesus Christ comes for the Christian, you will be glorified with him. This is the promise of the glory of God. It's amazing that we get to participate in his glory. In Second Thessalonians Chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We get to receive the glory of God. Amazing. That me, a sinner, a liar, who's not entitled to anything, would be saved by God Almighty for all eternity. This is a glorious truth. So I want to say today, if you've never taken that step of faith, that today can be your day. You know, you can make all of heaven rejoice. You turn to Christ by faith. I believe. Change me. I want to follow you. Jesus said, the angels rejoice in heaven when one sinner turns, and you can make heaven have a party right now. Also, if you're walking with the Lord and you, you may be strayed far from Him and God is calling you back, God is calling and directing your path back to Him to live for Him and to walk with Him in, in all newness and power, that today would be your day that you make another step. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks uh, for your word. Thank you for uh, the work that you're doing here at our church that the word is going out in power and that you're changing lives. Lord, I pray for and I ask for you to draw people to yourself even in this moment. It might be a moment of salvation and we ask, Lord, that you would save. You are mighty to save. Lord, I pray for those among us who are really dealing with and struggle with sin right now, and maybe even know better, we know better, but there's a struggle because there's something that sin is promising that is desirable, it's desirous, 
and uh, we want it, but Lord, we, we ask for your help, and Holy Spirit, confirm and convict us of sin, and confirm us in the truth that only you can deliver in your way is always the best way. So Lord, thank you. Thanks for your love for us. Thanks for your forgiveness. Thanks for your mercy. Thanks for your grace. Thank you for this time. And we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.